Um, da-na-na, da-na-na. Just join me if you uh, have that problem too. There you go. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Eric, one of the pastors here, and really glad that you are with us this morning. Um, I'm also really eager for you to meet uh, my friend Sean. And uh, he is actually showing up on uh, Wednesday afternoon, and uh, he will be leading a, um, a staff retreat on Thursday and Friday. And he's staying with us, which is great. I'm so excited to um, uh, connect with him. But I think that means on Saturday he's probably going to be watching some youth soccer. And uh, then he'll be with us on that Sunday. And Sean's a really uh, amazing, faithful um, creative, compelling, whimsical speaker and preacher. And I hope you'll make time to be here um, next Sunday morning for sure to come as he walks us through the next step of the series that we're in right now. But then maybe also especially that night as he comes back to seek to tell us this whole arc of the Bible in tw- now 20 minutes. When I first started talking to him about this, he said, I'll do it in about 40 minutes. I'm like, really? And then um, he's like, yeah, it'll probably be about 30. And that's the first time I've heard him say, it'll be about 20. So friends, that's a sweet deal. I mean, we're trying to do the whole story as quickly as we can in 11 weeks. He's going to do it in 20 minutes. And uh, it's going to be, I think, a really thought-provoking beautiful way to introduce people to the whole narrative arc of the Bible in a way that maybe they've never even really thought about what the Bible is. So I want to add my um, admonition to Sean's and invite you to uh, invite someone else. Probably there's a neighbor, coworker, family member who's never really sought to engage with the Bible for what the Bible actually is uh, in your life, in your circle and sphere of friends. And when I did youth ministry, we always encourage people, each one, reach one. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if every single one of us, first of all, I don't think we'd have capacity, which would be amazing, if every single one of us, someone in their life was able to, to reach out to someone they know could benefit from this kind of a presentation. So each one, reach one. Let me invite you to um, be included and to include others in that next Sunday. All right, as a way to get started and use our lungs one more time, I'm going to ask you to turn, and we've been spending all this time directed to the Lord, which is as it should be, and also we are a community. So I'm going to just ask you to turn to a friend of yours, maybe a new friend you've never met before until this exact moment, and just briefly say hello and share with them one thing that you do because your family did it. One thing you do because your family did it. It could be a, a character trait. It could be um, when I was growing up, my, we called the washing machine the washing McCleaner. doesn't matter what it is. Okay? Ready, set, go. Say hello.
All right, come on back. Come on back. I, uh, I know that oftentimes these things that we would do because of our own family, they don't quite work out this way, um, especially if we find ourselves um, married and we have to take whatever was true of our family and merge it with whatever was true of another family. So, for example, when I was growing up, for reasons I'm not exactly sure about, um, my, my parents always bought more than we needed in the moment. And as a result, a, a huge thing that I always try to do is I, I try to overbuy. So uh, Kirkland started in my, uh, Kirkland, uh, Costco started in my hometown. And um, what that means is from a very, very early age, my parents bought in bulk. We would um, buy, you know, we, we would go to Costco and we'd buy the 14-pound thing of Honey Nut Cheerios. And then here's what would happen next. My parents wouldn't just sort of store it somewhere. They, they would buy, um, we had acres upon acres of Tupperware or like Rubbermaid containers, right? Just like you'd open up my parents' shelf or our closet and there would be container, 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 all labeled so you knew exactly what was in them. It was a beautiful thing. People who still visit my parents' house, they open up their cup and they're like, whoa, that, yeah, Craig Nugaborn's been to my mom's house and he can, he can attest to this. It is a, a thing to behold. Now, here's the thing about that. I, um, I still want to do that. And if I'm left to my own devices, I will. But I am married to someone who thinks that is completely and totally unnecessary. So there's this constant tension. Should I buy the three cases of toilet paper or not? Probably not. Um, I'm pretty sure somewhere in my mom's cabinetry, there's still a container of rice that she moved with her from Redmond 10 years ago. Not because she's not been eating rice, but because she owned that much. We all have these things that sort of become part of how we are and how we operate. And as it turns out, in, in a way that will become clear at the very end, we see that really uh, come out in interesting ways at the very end um, of our sermon today. We are in week three, as someone said, of working our way through, seeking to work our way through the whole story of the Bible. And today we, uh, we get to about chapter 17 of Genesis. Two weeks ago, we started with creation, and, and what we sought to say about creation is this. What we sought to say is that uh, creation was put together with intention. It was not just sort of a, a happenstance, sort of smattering of moments. It didn't happen through the, the cataclysm of God's fighting or warring. It, it came together through the, the gentle word of God, speaking it with intention into existence. And what we said is, is that creation is intended to be relational. That as we peer into the opening um, lines of the Bible, what we see is that um, all of these relationships are, are sort of woven together in a beautiful way. God Himself is united in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. We are invited to have a relationship with that God. We're invited to have this beautiful, whole relationship with one another. And we're invited even to have some sort of a relationship with the, the soil under our feet. 
to take these things that God has given to us and build something with them, to reflect His creative um, character ourselves as part of what it means to bear the image of God. We have a purpose. So creation has been built and spoken into existence with intention, with relationship, and with a purpose for us. The biblical word for that is shalom. Shalom is not just peace or sort of the absence of bickering. Shalom is much deeper than that. Shalom is what happens when all of those things that God first intended to be blessing and flourishing actually turn out to be blessing and flourishing. And what we talked about last week is the catastrophe of how that shalom was shattered. Through our own um, exercise of our own will, through um, the rejection of what God said was, was beautiful, we've gone in just one chapter, humanity has gone from having this beautiful purpose as gardener to being one who is a rebel to being one who's now a fugitive. And though it's very hard for us to talk about sin and its consequences, we also know when we pause for just a minute, we, we do know that all of these relationships, all of these things that God went and sort of made for our good are now damaged in some way. Our spiritual lives, it's hard work. The relationships that we have with um, family and coworkers and spouses and siblings is, um, is now messy, filled with a lack of trust and, and anger. Even our work is not what it was intended to be. It's right for us to want the blessing, but it's also right for us to understand why often work is not blessing. The shalom has been shattered. Our relationships made difficult. Our purpose now confused. Our soul's freedom with God is now lost. And that's where we ended last week. What is God going to do? See, what's really clear as we continue to read the next couple of chapters is we, can't, we are not able to fix this problem on our own. What we see is story after story after story of, of how deep the hole goes. We'll never be able to fill the chasm. What will God do? That brings us to this week, covenant. So let's pray, and we'll dive in to covenant. Holy God, thank you for bringing us all here together. Most of us didn't even know it. I didn't even think about it. But you have been pulling us here. Thank you. Now that we're here, Lord, would you fill our hearts with expectation that you will show us what is true, what is right, what is beautiful, what is holy, what is noble. Lord, the things that are getting in the way of us hearing from you, would you just conquer them? 
words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Many of us know this word covenant. It's um, um, usually we hear it in some sort of a legal language where there's an understanding. We've, we um, have made an agreement between us and someone else. We, we both have things that we need to do for us to st- stay in relationship. Um, the place where I use the word covenant the most is not when I'm studying the Bible, I'm sorry to say. The time when I use the word covenant the most is when I'm talking about my homeowner's association. There is a set of covenants about what we are supposed to do to maintain good and healthy relationships between me and my neighborhood and those who are around me. And I will confess this covenant often is broken because I also inherited this from my parents besides Tupperware. I hate yard work. So what I just have described is, is the most common way that we think of as covenants as something that's sort of bilateral. I'll do something, you do something. As long as I do this thing, you do that thing, then the agreement stands. But what's interesting, actually, especially early on here, the very first things we discover about God is God has His heart is so deeply set upon helping us, He makes a number of unilateral like all on his own, a number of unilateral covenants. And maybe the most famous one, because we see it in all these children's books, is, is the one sort of represented by this picture. And um, in Genesis and 7 and 8 and, and 9, what we, what we see is God brings a flood, a great cleansing flood, because shalom is so shattered. And he saves a tiny little remnant to try to start over. Noah and the ark and the, the animals. And, and we think it's so cute, but it's terrifying. And as um, the waters recede and um, they come off of the boat, um, God gives us this covenant, this symbol of the covenant. Here's his promise. This is from um, Genesis chapter 9. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he says, as a visible reminder of that, um, we have this between us. What I've always loved about this image, whenever I see one driving down the street or sort of over the mountains or on the horizon somewhere, one of the things I love is that it reminds me that the arrows of God's wrath will always be pointed away from me. Have you ever thought about that? A rainbow is not just an interesting arc. It also is a bow and arrow. And the arrows will now always be pointed away from us. Why? Do we have to do something? Is there something that we're supposed to do? It turns out, no. This is God's heart that shalom would somehow would find a way to be reestablished. He will not allow this to happen. 
And then what we see for several generations in the Bible, very, very quickly, is a hot mess. Babel happens, trying to scratch and search out after God and ignore His commands and ignore what it is he's, He said is good and best for us. It's over 400 years, and it's right now, let's imagine, it's about the, about, we don't have this exact, obviously, it's about 1800 B.C. And this man named Terah has a child named Abram. And Abram grows up in this family, and he does things that families do, and it's all very normal. There's almost nothing, we, there is nothing that we know about his childhood. There's nothing that we know. And then God takes this moment in uh, Genesis chapter 12 and says, I'm going to start with Abram. So, why don't you turn to Genesis 12? I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. And I want you to know that I've committed as um, one of the preachers here that whenever we go through this series about the Scriptures, I'm going to try to make sure we read a huge chunk of the Scriptures together, just so we hear it and we knock out some of the mystery of what's actually in it. Okay? So, Abram's just this really ordinary guy, as we'll discover in a minute. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abram, I choose you to, be a, to bless you so that you will be a blessing. Now, because we know that this is um, so early on in this story, and because many of us know something of the way the rest of the Bible works out, we, we, um, we have the benefit of like this third-person omniscient point of view. We know more is to come. But Abram doesn't. The Lord just comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you. This is a good thing. I'm, I'm going to do this for you. And Abram's like, okay, what do I need to do? Leave everything that you think is good so I can give you the best. Leave your family. Leave your homeland. Let me show you that I have another plan for you and for the generations to come after you. What is it that Abram has had to do so far? God says, I just, I have a plan. What's interesting about this plan is what has been leading up to it. In the, in the first um, 11 chapters of Genesis, the word curse or um, cursed is used and directed of a thing or a circumstance five times. Five times we see the word curse is directed or said about a person or a thing. Five times in these three verses, God says, I will confront the curses with blessing. The word bless is used five times. See, whenever it is that God is going to covenant, whenever it is that God is going to make an agreement, God's going to step out in action, what you need to know is, is He's going to covenant so that we reverse the curse. That's what God is about. 
God wants to take what has been broken and shattered and falling to pieces. He's like, I'm going to bless. I'm going to bless until this comes out the way I intended. I will confront the dark consequences of sin. I will bless you. I will bless you so you will be a blessing to others. How will this come to be? Abram doesn't know. But God will do this. God's going to do it. What's interesting is he does call Abram to get up and to go. Leave that which is good to pursue that which is best. And you know what? Ever since then, God's people have been on mission. We've always been called out of our comfort to do something for God's shalom. So right after that, Abram does, he, he moves and um, he goes to Israel and this is one of those places, he goes to Egypt and this is one of those times where we realize God can use, will use, must use really broken people. That's the only option he's got. Because right after that, what we see is Abram and his wife, uh, Sarai, they, they go to Egypt and um, Abram just gives his wife over to the Pharaoh for, as a concubine. What? Right in the middle of all this, right in the middle of all this, God's promise, here we see Abram kind of working out on his own. And he separates from uh, his brother-in-law, or pardon me, his, uh, his cousin, and he fights a battle, and as the battle's over and they've, they've given away all the spoils, Abram hasn't taken any for his own, and probably he's wondering, was that a good idea? Should I have taken some of the spoils? I'm not getting, like, what should I take? And here we go, this next promise, and um, Genesis chapter 15. So turn there. Follow along. This is a long one. Most people think of this as the, um, the covenant with um, Abram par excellence. So after this battle, starting at verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. 
Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites, the land is yours. You notice about that promise. What do you notice? The Lord says, I'm going to do this. I know you're worried. Do not be afraid. I don't even have an heir. The shalom of, of blessing, of being able to multiply, I don't even have that. I don't even have any land of my own. I don't have a way for me to enact any of this. How will I know that I'll have heirs as numerous as the stars? How can I know the promise that um, this land will belong to me and my people? So God does this really weird thing. Those who would have first heard it would have recognized what it was. It was, uh, it was a way of setting a contract. Oftentimes, contracts were set between kings and, and cities or even individuals where they would, as a way of saying, um, I'm going to do this. We're both going to do this. We have terms set. We're going to walk through these animals as if to say, may it be to me, like these animals, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. A sort of like 18th century B.C. notary. This sets it down in stone. Can you tell me, just notice in your own thinking, who passes through the animals? Just God. God says, I, I will do this. You will have a nation as many as the stars. And they are going to be enslaved for 400 years. You're never going to see this promise fulfilled. Because here's the other thing I want you to know. This is really important, that God covenants on His own timeline. This is what you need to know. We have this tiny, short, little human perspective. 80, 85, 90, 95 years if, um, if we're fortunate. 
What we don't get to see is actually this whole overarching narrative of of the fact that God is going to do things that are going to take so long beyond our ability, but He's still going to do it through broken human beings. John Stott says that when we get to Genesis uh, 12 through 25, when we get to the story of Abram, that we have successfully read half the Bible. This is what he says. We are now halfway through. And what he means by that is we have been confronted with the goodness of God. We've been confronted with the catastrophe of our own sin. And now we are given the covenant, the promise that God will work it out. The rest is just all the details. This is how God is going to do that. And, and while we're only halfway through the Bible, it turns out it's kind of a long half. And friends, so it is with us. God in His deep and abiding love for His people and, and individuals who are, make up that people, he's, he's at work right now to reverse the curse. But it's not on your timeline. It's not happening maybe in the way that you would intend or desire. Does that mean that God has forgotten? Does that mean that God doesn't know? That God has stopped being faithful? What's interesting is to me is, is Adam, Abram believed God even though he never saw any of it. What's been challenging to me right this week is thinking about all the things that I hope and expect and anticipate and trust that are true, and simultaneously I think these are never going to come to pass. See, God covenants on His own timeline, not on ours. He's promised Abram that uh, He's going to have children. He's going to have an entire nation that comes from him, that he'll have descendants as many as the stars, that those descendants are going to be enslaved, and then they'll receive freedom. Abram hears all this, and he believes, and he trusts, but then he kind of doesn't. Because the very next thing that happens in in chapter 16 is that he takes a servant girl and has a child with her. What? You should be a little troubled by that. Now, it was kind of accepted practice in 1800 BC that, that um, if you didn't have your own heir, that you would do this. And yet what we see more than anything else, what you should be most troubled about is Abram taking the promise in his own hands. Have you done that? Tried to rush it along? What we see in Scripture and what I know about my own life, whenever I try to take the blessing and rush it along, it's always a bad idea. In my relationships, when I was younger, in my romances in the way I pursue my career, any time I take what it is that God intends for blessing to reverse the curse in His own time and rush it along, I've ruined it. See, God has in mind for us a way for us to receive and know blessing and shalom. And to do it on our timeline destroys it. 
So God comes to him one more time in chapter 17. We're just going to read eight verses. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. Has he been faithful or walked in faithfulness yet? Notice how God says, do this and then I'll bless you. And then right away, as for me, here's my blessing. God cannot help but work on our behalf. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. If you go back and you remember what we said got broken in a catastrophe. Going forth and multiplying, having children, growing in our ability to reflect God's image back to Him. If you remember that we've been kicked out of our homeland, and if you remember that we are now separated by God, what you see right here is God taking that directly on. God's covenant is always for shalom. God's covenant is, is always for shalom. Just think about it. Here's what, he's, here's what he said. Although you don't have a child of your own yet, a whole family, a whole nation, nations upon nations will now come to fruition through you. The consequence of the difficulty of childbirth you know, and I am going to take that away for the sake of my shalom for all time. God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people now and for all of your descendants. This relationship has, has been shattered and has been separated and has been confused by the catastrophe of sin. But what, he's, what God wants Abram to know, Abraham to know right now is this. That though that relationship has been separated, there will now be new hope. God's making a promise. And though they have been exiled, God says, though you are a stranger... I am creating for you a new home. This is the character of God. That God will confront directly the curses and hardship in our life. It won't always happen on our time frame. It won't always happen in the way that we would direct. We don't always get to see it. In fact, probably rarely get to see it. 
but God covenants to bring shalom. He covenants to bring fullness and flourishing. See, these are the, friend, these are the, the plans of the Lord from the very beginning, and I want you to know them. God, from the very beginning, has plans to reverse the curse. God, from the very beginning, has promised to bring shalom, but He also has promised to do it on His own timeline. That's what this is about. God is at work that you might have life and that you will have it abundantly. What's interesting about this, as I go back and think about what are we to do, there are things that God tells us to do. It just doesn't seem like they ever are actually connected to the covenant, at least not in this moment here with Abram. There's some bilateral commands coming in a little bit. But early on, he says, go, Abram, go. And then in, verse, in chapter 15, he says, do not be afraid. And then in chapter 17, he says, be faithful in your walk. Go. Do not be afraid. Be faithful in your walk. See, what he anticipates is the more that we find ourselves in the family and finding ourselves trusting what's at the core of the covenant, that we will just take on more and more of what it looks like to be in the family. It's like 18th century BC Tupperware. The more that we find ourselves trusting the covenant, the more we find ourselves acting like we're in the family. And what does it look like to be in the family? What does it look like to find ourselves as part of the people who have received and believed the promise? We go. We trust that what He has is best over the good of what we can plan for ourselves. We are not afraid because we know we have the God of the universe who's at work for us and on our behalf. And we walk blameless and in a holy way before Him because we know in that way is flourishing and shalom. That's what it's like to be the recipient of these promises. We end up taking on the character of God Himself. We end up taking on more and more the character and the smell and the fragrance and the activity and the habit of those who've been named and claimed by God. You see, you have the promise. You have it. Will you live it? encourage you to spend just a few minutes in silence thinking about that. You have the promise. How can you live it with greater joy and confidence? Carl will lead us in prayer in a minute.
Heavenly Father, you are a covenant God. You make promises and you keep them. You're a God of steadfast love. You're merciful, gracious, kind, and good. And you are the reason that we can pray today with confidence. You mysteriously invite us to help shape your world and its people by our prayers. Your kingdom comes as we pray and live and witness and serve, all in this context of covenant. And we have no idea why you would invite us into this holy responsibility, but here we are. And so we pray for the world that you so love, the world for whom Christ died on a cross. We pray for people who are like us and for people who are vastly different from us. From those that we'll see this week in our neighborhoods, or where we live, or in our schools, or in the workplace, all of them people that you love. We take a moment to imagine them, to anticipate meeting with them, and now we, in silence, say a prayer for them. Hear our prayer. We remember in prayer those who may see things differently than we do people of other denominations or political parties, people of other races or ethnicities, people of different levels of income or education, all of them people that you love. We hold them in our mind's eye and we lift them to you in prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our broken, hurting world from victims of flooding in the southeast the ongoing plight of the Rohingya people seeking refuge in Bangladesh. Lord, have mercy. Sustain those who offer them care and alleviate the needs of the suffering. Bring your justice. We think of those people in our own families or in this church family who need our prayers this morning. From challenges in our marriages or with a child, Lord, give grace to our families. We think of the difficulties in this week ahead, doctor's appointments and tests and chronic pain, a surgery or hospitalization, or maybe even a death. We think of those who struggle silently with grief or loneliness, with depression or insomnia or anxiety. Lord, each and every one of us needs your grace, so hear us as we pray in quiet for these and other needs. Oh God, how great you are. How vast and inscrutable is your plan. And how faithful is your love. So bless us this day and into this week, we pray. We offer all these prayers to you in the name of Christ.